Welcome to the Preserving Family Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to equip you to gain insight, information, and inspiration to help you protect, teach, and guide your family during these turbulent times. Our goal is to provide tools and resources to help you strengthen and preserve your own marriages and families. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Mark and Janie Ogletree. We are so excited to be here today. Thank you for joining us. And our topic is one that we both feel very passionate about, which is... (laughs) Today we are going to talk about grit, grit and resilience, which for us as we raised our children, that was something that was probably top three of things that we taught our kids or wanted to teach them. (laughs) Because we feel like it affects everything if you're going to be successful at anything in this life, you have to have grit. You have to have resilience. You have to have toughness, mental, emotional, physical toughness to get through anything. If we're going to be successful in academics or a sport or skills or piano or whatever, spirituality, every single thing takes grit and resilience and toughness. Well, I was even thinking as, as our youth and children are preparing to be parents one day. I mean, how could you possibly be a parent in this world if you didn't have some grit, you know, if you didn't have some moxie, mm-hmm. you know, you know, it's funny though, as we think back on how we were raised and once again, our parents thought we were wimps, right? Because <laughs> True. I think every generation <laughs> thinks that the next generation yeah. is weaker. <laughs> they grew up in the great depression. You know, mm-hmm. I know I had a dad who grew up milking cows at five thirty in the morning and, and walking in f- miles to school. So we were just wimps because we, we <laughs> took <could>, the bus. <laughs> yeah, or rode our bikes to school and we weren't milking cows, you know. And But I do, I think, you know, in fact, comedians have had a heyday talking about playgrounds, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> right? I mean, all the crazy equipment we had when we were kids, you know. And once again, here we are talking about grit and we're talking about the playground. But, <laughs> but we know that today that, you know, those playgrounds are cushioned. Uh, you see kids with bike helmets on as they're going down the slide. They're all plastic. There's no sharp edges. There's no <laughs> right, and we still there's remember... no those no merry-go-rounds anymore. No, no metal it's... slides that burned our thighs. <laughs> well, remember the slide was like uh, like two stories high. I mean, you <laughs> you would climb up and look down, and and that would just be enough to creep you out. And then you had the long ride down, like you said. But I remember the merry-go-round. I mean, we literally would try to see who could fly off, you know. <laughs> we had good times. <laughs> <laughs> but in our day, you know, once again, I hate saying that because it sounds like we went to war or something, but my friends, we all, everyone had a broken arm or a broken leg. Everyone had scabs. I mean, show me a, I just don't see a lot of scabs <laughs> out there anymore or, or broken. I mean, you know, the athlete, a lot of athletic kids have broken limbs or whatever, but it was just a different time. In fact, I remember, I mean, Janie, you, you'd be different on this because I'm sure girls had more sense. But I remember there was a game that we would play as boys. And the idea was we wanted to try to break a limb. I mean, you know, and it was <laughs> oh like, okay, if we, were, if we jump off the roof, that could do it. If we jumped <laughs> off this wall, maybe that would do it. And uh, whoever broke their whatever, you know, that... They won, you know. <laughs> well, I don't. We never did that as girls, but I, we did play outside from the time we got home from school till mom called us in for dinner. We were outside playing, 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 and and now it's sad because today kids spend more than three hours a day watching TV or playing video games or computer games, and that's not even counting social media time. So three hours, then they go in and get on their social media or their phones. 
And, and let me say right now that the Pew Research Center data on that is when you count all the other things you're adding in, it's now like seven hours a day, which is like a full work day. Oh, right? gosh. Yeah, and they're, they're texting, they're watching reels, they're... Watching YouTube. Watching YouTube, whatever the, they are that they're doing, watching all their favorite influencers live their lives. You know, they're out watching people travel the world and have adventures and doing funny things and living their lives, and they're just watching it on their screens. Right. So it's created a, a culture today, a generation of kids that are softer than previous generations. Mm. And if you guys want to read a really good book, (laughs) this is one that we would recommend by Charles Sykes, 50 Rules Kids Won't Learn in School, Real World Antidotes to Feel Good Education. That's a great book. But he says, instead of preparing children to deal with the inevitable scratches, bumps, and bruises of growing up, modern parents insist that we should swaddle them in bubble wrap. The modern bubble wrap mentality assumes that children are so frail and easily bruised that they have to be insulated from life. No losing, no disappointments, no harsh reality checks, but like a child who grows up in a bubble without developing any immunities to the outside world, a child raised in bubble wrap is not prepared for the symptoms of life. And we see that, right? I mean, that, I mean, now we're, you know, that we call it the failure to launch. I mean, a lot of these children who grew up then to be teenagers and then to be adults are having a really hard time coping and dealing with life because they really never had to do anything hard as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. And it reminds me, you know, you were talking about outside, outdoor kids, you know, playing outside. And you know, once again, we get it. We understand. There's scary things out there. Uh, there's The media has scared almost every parent that our kid's going to be ad- abducted or something. If we, we let them play in the front yard. <laughs> yeah, yeah we don't, and we don't want to minimize that. I mean, that's, we understand that that could be a real, a real thing. But we've lost something by having our children be become indoor kids. And we've got to figure figure a way out to, to deal with that. Now, this next statement we want to share actually comes from another awesome book by Madeline Levine, a great psychologist in the Bay Area, area of California. Her book is called The Price of Privilege. And really, she talks about how affluence has really ruined children today. Because, Janie, you and I were talking earlier, and you were saying, wow, what do you have to work for now? I mean, what do you, I mean, you, we talked about how children are almost handed everything they would ever want. They've got all the name brand clothes. They get handed cell phones. They get handed video games for Christmas or birthdays or whatever. They live in beautiful homes. They get to go to Disneyland. They go on fancy trips with their family. Like what they else? Tr- Remember the old days when we were growing up, you, a family vacation consisted of going to visit grandma. <laughs> and, uh, and now they're, they literally travel internationally. I mean, it's, to go on a family trip, you're going to Europe, you know, or whatever. Right. Anyway, back to that statement. Uh, Madeline Levine is quoting Dr. David Fassler, who's a child and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at the University of Vermont. But he just says that too many teenagers these days haven't had enough bad things happen to them. And in order for children to learn how to cope with the normal frustrations with ups and downs, we have to first experience them. And then she said a a child cannot possibly develop resilience when their parents are constantly at their side interfering with the development of autonomy, self-management, and coping skills. This reminds me from a gospel perspective, something that Elder Neil A. Maxwell said years ago. And when I say years ago, it was 1975. But you think about that, you know, we're talking 40, 50 years ago now. 
Those who do too much for their children will soon find that they can do nothing with their children. And then he said, so many children have been so much done for, they are almost done in. Don't you find that humorous almost? (laughs) He said that so long ago. I mean, I wonder what those kids were so spoiled over in 1975. Like, but that also reminds me of Elder Oaks kind of said something like that in his talk, Good, Better, Best. He said that children and teenagers are being amused to death. <laughs> he, then he said spiritual death or whatever, but yeah, for, for sure. How about this one from Elder Maxwell? He said that I have no hesitancy, brothers and sisters, in stating that unless checked, permissiveness by the end of its journey will cause humanity to stare in mute disbelief at its awful consequences. So really what we want to talk about here just for a second is we'll call this principle number one, but resistance molds and builds character in our children, right? If you take out the idea of working, of doing hard things, I mean, that's what made us who we are. And that's what made previous generations who they were was their work ethic, their their ability to do hard things. And if you just think about the analogy of the chicken and the egg, right, is that when chickens are ready to hatch, they have to claw and peck their way out of that shell to get out. But if you just went and broke the egg open, they literally die. They Mm. can't, they have to develop those muscles and the strength in order to live. And I think that's how it is with our children is we take every opportunity away from them that made us strong, you know, that made our forefathers strong. And we take them and we try to have them have this happy, wonderful, carefree life. But in the meantime, they're not developing those coping muscles. That's right. I love that. So many analogies of the farm. We just need to all buy a farm, right, for our our families. (laughs) How about this? Back to Madeline Levine, that by allowing our children to get occasionally bruised in childhood, we're helping them make certain that they don't get broken in adolescence. And by allowing them in their failures in adolescence, we're helping lay the groundwork for successful adulthood. Mm, they got to have these hard experiences, right? We can't take those away from them. Yeah. As painful as it is for us parents to watch them go through it, it's it's good. It molds and shapes them and helps strengthen those muscles. Exactly. Elder Packer even said, teach our members that if they have a good miserable day once in a while or several in a row, to stand steady and face them. Things will straighten out. There is a great purpose in our struggles in life. You know, miserable days are healthy and necessary sometimes. <laughs> and I think for even us as adults, sometimes we wonder, oh, why? You know, oh, today was horrible. And the next day, and like, why am I going through all this? But it's, you know, as you look back, I don't know, for me, as I look back over my life, the hardest times are the times that I grew most, the times I grew most spiritually, the times I grew most physically, the most, you know, that I learned the most lessons. And I think that's just a lesson that we need to teach our children. And we need to understand that for our children, that yes, they go through, they can go through hard things. We can help them, love them, support them, but they need to go through those things. We can't take it away from them. We need to, we cannot fight their battles for them. Right. And every day cannot be a day at Disneyland. I mean, just some days are not going to be great. Another uh, great statement from a prophet, President Ezra Taft Benson, He said, while I do not believe in stepping out of the path of duty to pick up a cross, I don't need. A man is a coward who refuses to pick up a cross that clearly lies within his path. And then he said this, no cross, no crown, no gall, no glory, no thorns, no throne. I just think that's so powerful. 
And it makes me wonder, why is that not a bumper sticker? Why is that not a T-shirt? <laughs> no cross, no crown, no, you know, why is that not the theme of a youth conference? I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty awesome stuff. Well, actually, we did a couple years ago. We used it for the theme of our family reunion at Bear Lake. We really challenged our kids to teach their children, our grandchildren, to be gritty. And we gave them this poem called Good Timber by Douglas Malick which we love and we wanted to share it with you because it's really awesome. We challenged our kids to read it or to memorize it and also our grandchildren to read and memorize a little part of it. And, and they're it, pretty young, so it wasn't like they were... Yeah, but they memorized but they this did. little tiny paragraph and they got rewarded for it. But we gave them each a framed copy for their home and I love to see it in their homes because it's just a really profound thing that our family stands really behind. stands for and stands behind. And so right. this is called Good Timber again. The tree that never had to fight for sun and sky and air and light, but stood out in the open plain and always got its share of rain, never became a forest king, but lived and died a scrubby thing. The man who never had to toil to gain and form his patch of soil, who never had to win his share of sun and sky and light and air, never became a manly man, but lived and died as he began. And this is the part our young grandchildren's <laughs> our young grandchildren memorized. Good timber does not grow with ease. The stronger the wind, the stronger the trees. The further the sky, the greater the length. The more the storm, the more the strength. By sun and cold, by rain and snow, in trees and men, good timbers grow. Mm. Where, the thick, where the thickest lies the forest growth, we find the patriarchs of both. And they hold counsel with the stars, whose broken branches show the scars. Of many winds and much of strife, this is the common law of life. And it really is. Good timber grow, does not grow with ease. And our children don't grow with ease either. So this leads us into what we'll call principle number two today, which is, we'll say, just introducing the concept of grit. And many of you are aware of Angela Duckworth's great book on grit. And here in that book, she says this, that grit is passion or perseverance for very long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. Grit is sticking with your future day in and day out, not just for a day, not just for a month, but for years to make that future a reality. You know, there were some other authors who said that uh, grit is that mix of passion, perseverance, and self-discipline that keeps us moving in spite of obstacles. It's not flashy. And that's precisely the point. And I still remember when our son, who was, you know, played college football, that was one of his favorite words. He would the greatest compliment that he would give a teammate is, "He's gritty." Yep, he's gritty, and I really like that. Now back to Angela Duckworth. She said that grit is working strenuously towards challenges, maintaining effort and interest over the years despite failures, adversity, and plateaus in progress. And then she said this, and this is key. She said, grit is a better indicator of success than talent. And no matter how talented you think you are, if you don't put in the work, it will amount to nothing. In fact, another book that was called, or that's titled Talent is Overrated, the author argues that deliberate, methodical, and sustained practice is really the only way to achieve true mastery. And then he said this, Colvin, that deliberate practice is hard. It hurts, but it works. And more of it equals better performance. Tons of it equals great performance. So let's go back to Duckworth's book here for a minute. And by the way, the, t the real title of the book is Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. But she tells the story of West Point, of West Point cadets. 
And at West Point in the United States Military Academy, there are 14,000 applicants every year. Think of that, 14,000. 4,000 are able to receive the required nomination, and then 2,500 meet West Point's rigorous academic and physical standards, and then only 1,200. So let's start. Let's do that again. Start with 14,000 applicants, 1,200 make it. 1,200 out of 14,000. And although most of the students who come to West Point were varsity athletes, team captains, one in five, so 20% of these cadets will drop out before graduation. In fact, most of the dropouts do so after two months. And that all comes after a seven-week training period called, in quotes, the beast. And then Duckworth says, who spends two years trying to get into a place and then drops out the first two months? Well, she's going to tell us. She talks about the whole candidate score. The whole candidate score is the weighted formula of how they admit uh, cadets into West Point. It consists of these pieces. Ready? Number one, the weighted average of ACT and SAT exam scores. Number two, high school rank. Number three, expert appraisal of leadership potential. And number four, performance on objective measures of physical fitness. The whole candidate score is the single most important factor in West Point admissions, but that did not, that score did not predict who would make it through the beast. In fact, cadets with the highest whole candidate scores were just as likely to drop out as those with the lowest. But scores on the grit scale bore no relationship to those whole candidate scores. Or in other words, how talented a cadet was said nothing about their grit and vice versa. Now, by the way, Duckworth talks about this story right in the very beginning of the book. So many of you have heard this before. So in July 2004, on the second day of the Beast, 1,218 West Point cadets sat down to take the grit scale. On the last day of the Beast, 71 cadets had dropped out. Grit turned out to be an astounding, reliable predictor of who made it through and who didn't. The next year, she said, I returned to West Point to run the same study. This time, 62 cadets dropped out. Remember, 71 the year before, 62 this year. Uh, They dropped out of the beast. And again, grit predicted who would stay. So what matters for making it through the beast? Not your SAT scores, not your high school rank, not your leadership experience, not even your athletic ability, not your whole candidate score at all. What matters was grit, she said. And then Duckworth gives a few other examples. In one sales company, she talked about in a six-month period, 55% of the sales team left and grit predicted who stayed and and who, who left. And then in a study in the Chicago public school system, students who graduated on schedule were grittier and grit was more of a powerful predictor of graduation than how much students cared about school, how aware they were of their studies, and even how safe they felt at school. At the university level, Duckworth also found in her studies that grittier adults were more likely to get further in their formal schooling. Adults who earned an MBA, a PhD, an MD, or a JD, or another graduate degree were grittier than those who had only graduated from a four-year college. You know, this reminds me of a very personal story. I almost hate telling it, but I became very aware early on in my doctoral program that I was probably academically at least the mule of the Kentucky Derby. I mean, I was surrounded by awesome students who were very bright, very intellectual, and I probably wasn't in their category academically, 
But I always believed something that I heard President Oaks, you know, say that many of his cohort, his fellow students, were so much smarter and brighter than him. But he said, "But I knew that I could outwork them. I that no one would out outwork me." And I've just always felt that way, that that was something I had control over. And so I went to work, even though I wasn't the, the brightest or as bright as those I was competing with academically, I knew that I could work. And, and I ended up finishing my degree before anyone else. And I remember sitting with my professor in his front lawn, and he just taught me a lesson that I hope I never forget. I hope I can pass it down to my children and grandchildren. But I said to this wonderful professor, I said, you know, I think it's almost ironic that I was the first one who finished because he knew exactly what I meant, you know, when I said that. And he said, hey, but stop for a minute. Listen to what you're saying. He said, that, that's a great life lesson right there. That the prizes don't always go to the brightest or the sharpest or the most intellectual or the most talented. The prizes go to those who work the hardest. Now, he didn't have the vernacular of Angela Duckworth. Grit was not a word that we used back in the late 1990s. But I think he would have said, because grit, grit makes all the difference. That is a great principle, and we definitely have tried to teach our children that, that no matter what happens, there's always going to be somebody better, smarter, brighter than you, but nobody can outwork you. We really did push that with our kids. And (laughs) Angela Duckworth teaches kind of this principle. She said, the separation of talent and skill is one of the greatest misunderstood concepts for people who are trying to excel, who have dreams, who want to do things. Talent you have naturally. Skill is only developed by hours and hours and hours of beating on your craft. I would add that skill is not the same thing as achievement either. Without effort, your talent is nothing more than your unmet potential. Without effort, your skill is nothing more than what you could have done but didn't. With effort, talent becomes skill, and at the very same time, effort makes skill productive. And in case of some of you of some of you being curious about what that grit scale looks like, we'll just read you some of the questions here. But new ideas and projects distract me from previous ones. Question number one. Number two, setbacks don't discourage me. I don't give up easily. Number three, I often set a goal but later choose to pursue a different one. Number four, I'm a hard worker. Number five, I have difficulty maintaining my focus on projects that take more than a few months to complete. Number six, I finish whatever I begin. Number seven, my interests change from year to year. Number eight, I am diligent. I never give up. Number nine, I've been obsessed with a certain idea or project for a short time, but I've later lost interest. And number 10, I've overcome setbacks to conquer an important challenge. It just feels like to me that as parents, some of the great things that we should be focused on with our children are helping our children overcome discouragement I'm using this scale to be hard workers, to finish what they start, to not quit, to be diligent, to never give up, and to overcome challenges and setbacks. I think that's what this is all about, this grit. So let's talk about some of the distractions to developing grit, some of the, you'd call them hindrances or barriers to grit. I mean, why are so many of our children not learning to be gritty today? I don't know. Janie, what do you think? Well, I think a lot of it, we've already talked about social media, video games, just media uh, in general, electronics, all those things that which we know just, you know, weakens our youth today. But I think honestly, a lot of it is I think parents are the problem. Parents either get in the way or aren't teaching it at all. And I think I've seen so many parents who go in and fight their children's battles, 
who are talking to the teacher or, you know, complaining to the coach about their kid's playing time or um, complain to the teacher about something that happened in the class or whatever, or even fighting their friend battles. Anyway, things like that. But then parents aren't teaching their kids to be gritty. They bubble wrap them. They take away any obstacle in their way. They want to keep life easy and fun kind of for their snow children. Kind parent movement, right, of just... Moving all those obstacles out of the way, and heaven forbid our child do something hard or right. tough or difficult, right? And I've heard parents say, well, I work so hard so that my kids don't have to, or mm. I've done this so that my kids don't have to, but then that takes away your children's opportunity for growth. Right. Janie, that reminds me so much of that great talk in General Conference that Stan Ellis gave. Elder, Elder We call him Stan because he's a family friend, but uh, Elder Ellis... He said this, that before this calling, I was a financial consultant in Houston, Texas. And most of my work was with multimillionaires who owned their businesses. Almost all of them had created their successful businesses from nothing through lots of hard work. But the saddest thing for me was to hear some of them say that they wanted to make it easier for their children. They did not want their children to suffer as they had. In other words, they would deprive their children of the very thing that had made them successful. And I think one of the most, I do, I think one of the key factors here in teaching this great concept of grit, this great virtue of grit, is having wonderful, awesome parents who are gritty. In fact, in Duckworth's book, she says that teens with warm, respectful, and demanding parents earned higher grades in school, were more self-reliant, suffered from less anxiety and depression, or were less likely to engage in delinquent uh, behavior if they had those parents who were warm and respectful but demanding. In essence, these are, are authoritative parents who are high on support, but also high on demand. They have great relationships with their children, but they expect things from their children. They will want their children to work and do hard things. Yeah, so parents, what would happen if we expected our child to, if they have an issue with the teacher, for them to go make an appointment with the teacher and talk to the teacher instead of us? What would happen if they had to go talk to their coach about playing time instead of us getting involved? What would happen if we had actually had them call and make their own dentist appointment or, you know, their own hair appointment or whatever? <laughs> or the, with the DMV or the driver's <laughs> license, right? What would happen if we put the responsibility back on them? We, we raised our children on kind of the theory that we don't do anything for our children that they can do for themselves. So in young children, that looks like letting them dress themselves. Yes, sometimes it might be inside out and backwards and their shoes might be on the wrong feet, but that's okay. If they want to push the stool over and get their own drink of water, that's a huge accomplishment. I think that's great, but I see parents freaking out like, oh, no, 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 they might fall. They might hurt themselves. <laughs> we always looked at it as like, great, they can get their own water. That's one less thing that we have to do. And it teaches them to be resilient, to be independent, to think for themselves. And I love that. All the way up to teenagehood, let them find a job. Let them have a summer job. Even if it doesn't, they don't want to work, you don't want them working in the school year or whatever. They need summer jobs. They need opportunities to work for other people, to experience working for a boss that's not their parent, that actually requires things of them, that gets mad when they show up late, that has, you know, where they have to experience challenges and learn hard things in relationships. Right. Totally. Yeah, or fighting the battle with a coach or a teacher or an administrator or something like that to let them do that and have those experiences. This reminds me of a great story that I think all BYU football fans will appreciate, but told by Steve Young. In fact, 
His book, My Life Behind the Spiral, was a wonderful book. I love that. I love that book and learning about Steve in more detail. But he just told the story of being on the depth chart at BYU as, as the eighth string quarterback and basically his freshman year being used as a blocking dummy practically and just getting the tar beat out of him in practice. And he just saw no end to this and it just did, it was not fun. And one night he called his dad on the phone. Now, by the way, his dad's name is Grit, okay? And when your dad's name is Grit, you're going to learn grit, right? So uh, Steve calls his dad and basically says, Dad, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm coming home. My bags are packed. I've had it. I'm not staying here any longer. And his dad, Grit Young, says, You can certainly quit, but you can't come home. I'm not living with a quitter, so you can decide for yourself. Steve said, I hung up mad, but I stayed at BYU. And a lot of you know what happened as a result. Not long after that, Steve went from the eighth person on the depth chart to the second person. And not long after that, he went to the first person and ended up having one of the most storied careers in BYU history. And then in the NFL, and a lot of that was because of a dad who said, you're not going to be a quitter. Oh, I love that. And I I hope that that ethic is taught uh, in our homes because it's so needed today, more than ever. Back to Madeline Levine's book, she said, Here is a painful psychological truth for parents that our primary responsibility is not to gratify our children, which of course we do often and happily, but to make certain that they develop a repertoire of skills that will help them meet life's inevitable challenges and disappointments. Or in other words, as parents, if we're not doing that, if we're not equipping our children with the skills, with the grit, with the savvy, with the moxie, with the work ethic, to navigate their way through this life, this difficult life that we live in, this toxic world that we live in, then not only as parents will we have failed, but our children are going to fail. They need our help. And so question, parents, for every one of you today, do your children know your grit stories? Do they know the experiences in your life when you've had to show that grit? And I know just an example in our own family that occurred just a few years ago, but our youngest daughter ran for an office at the school. They had the election. She did not win. And I remember her coming home and how devastated she was. Of course, she was devastated. And I remember both Janie, you and I have both had, we both had our share of experiences in high school that weren't wonderful. We had our thrills of victory and our agonies of defeat. And we shared those experiences with her and and really, you know, helping her understand how we had to bounce back, how we had to get up and try again. And that daughter responded to that. I was so proud of her, our daughter, Natalie. And sure enough, the next year she won that election. You know, she just did not stay laying down. So proud of her for that. But there are many stories of grit in our lives, many, many stories that we can be sharing with our children. I think we can share stories from our apostles and prophets when they did hard things, people from the scriptures that did really hard things. We can talk about things from our nation, from the wars, from sports figures, whatever your child's into, find gritty stories about people that overcame hard things and hard trials. Yeah, and I love those those stories, as you mentioned, Janie, of, of our own ancestors who have done hard, difficult things in their lives. 
let's let's talk for a minute about what a gritty home looks like you know i mean our yeah. home life yeah we've just kind of identified a few things maybe that we could work on in our homes to teach our children grit and resilience then teach teaching our children to be tough to be courageous to when they get hurt you know to bounce back quickly and not milk the situation <laughs> or whatever. for a really long time yeah, yeah. We teach our children not to whine and complain about things, to try to find the optimistic view on things, to bounce back after trials. And it's hard. I mean, we as adults have a hard time with that. So teaching our children to look for the positive and to try to teach that resilience when hard things do happen. To teach them to have a healthy dose of moxie, you know, so when things go wrong, or even if they do become depressed, how they can kind of pull themselves out of it. And then when things don't go their way, it's okay. Get up and fight, right? To to fight back, so to speak. But life's not fair. I think that's a principle that, right. that we all need to learn. <laughs> that we have to be flexible. You know, sometimes grit implies that we have to be able to roll with the flow. And when difficult things happen, you figure you figure a way out of it, right? Teach them the principle of perspective. I think that's a great gospel principle, to look at things with the long view. Encourage your children to do hard things and to try new things and to have new experiences. And kids don't like that. Kids don't like to be pushed sometimes or to have experience uncomfortableness, just like, again, as we do sometimes. As but adults, we need yeah. to encourage and kind of push them and reassure that they can do these things and they can overcome all this and that's how they build muscle and are able to do it in the future right amen you know quite a few years ago our family found ourselves in the saint george temple visitor center and at that time there was a video that was being shown which was called only a stone cutter and it was the true story of john r moyle some of you know that story who uh is the stone superintendent the mason the superintendent of masonry at the salt lake temple and when he's home one weekend in Alpine, uh, the cow kicks him below the knee, shatters his knee. In those days, all they could do was put you on a, you know, in his case, they strapped him to the, to the door. They took the door off the hinges, strapped him to the door, and sawed his leg off. And then over time, he learns to walk again using a peg leg. It is 22 miles from Alpine to the Salt Lake Temple site. Um, and anyway, John R. Moyle, when he's ready, he walks that, and he had been walking it for years, but he had, you know, both legs, but now he's going to walk it on a peg leg, and he's the one who chiseled holiness to the Lord on the Salt Lake Temple, on the wall of the temple there. But anyway, the point is, is as I watched this movie, and I was the bishop of our ward at the time, I just had this awareness that, okay, I want our youth to do this. When I say do this, not necessarily saw their legs off, right? But I wanted them to have this type of experience. So we organized it with our youth leaders and planned a day where we would walk to the, to the uh, Dallas Temple from where we lived out in the suburbs of McKinney. Luckily, we had some youth leaders, some sisters with us in our program because when I told them we were going to walk 22 miles, they said, okay, calm down, calm down. Could we do half of that the first time? Could we go 11 or 12? I felt I felt a little cheated there, but we did two of these walks the first one was 11 or 12 miles and the second time we did the full 22 but that was a great experience and i loved being with our youth we had devotionals along the way and and still those youth 
are now adults. Those youth are in their mid-20s to late 20s, and they still will tell me their experiences uh, that they had that day as they walked to the Dallas Temple. But to church leaders, to young women leaders, to bishopric members, why not have our children, sorry, our youth do things that are, that are not that easy? Now, the next area, and we'll finish with this, but what are things that we can do in our own homes to teach our children grit? So just to wrap these things up, the five ways that we kind of identified to teach our children grit is to teach them using examples from our own lives, the lives of our relatives, the people around us, the people in the gospel, the scriptures, distant relatives, or even our nation. Also, never do anything for your children that they can do for themselves. Teach them early on that they are capable and that they can do what they need to do. Number three, teach your children and expect them to do hard things. Create challenges. Put challenges in front of them. When natural challenges come, don't get in the way. Let them conquer them. Right. And that's, I think, a challenge as a parent to also create opportunities, in quotations, and and challenges for them. Help them learn skills. Help them, you know, do hard things. Um, The next one is help your children find things that they are passionate about. What do they like to do? Do they like to do art? Do they love music? Do they love sports? Do... Do they like to bake? Do they like to do domestic things? This is how our children develop self-worth and self-identity and self-esteem. It's Yes, it's definitely not from size of the home, material possessions, how tan they are, how straight their teeth are, although we may feel that way sometimes, but it really does come from doing hard things. You, some of you may remember a story we told a while back of Elder Christofferson when he was a young man, and he was tending the sheep, And it was a winter night, or it was a spring night, but it was a snowy night when those 13 sheep bore lambs. And Elder Christofferson helped those sheep stay alive all through the night, those lambs and their mothers. And his father on the phone the next day says, okay, how many did we lose? And Elder Christofferson was so happy to be able to say, hey, Dad, we didn't lose any of them. We kept them alive. And he was keeping them alive by rubbing them all night long with a gunny sack. Now, this is when he was an elementary school child. And then Elder Christofferson made this great observation. He says, today, he said, self-worth comes from having our children do hard things, not from telling them how wonderful, wonderful they are. And I think that's a great point. Our final point is helping our children do things that are outside their comfort zone. And I really have to give a shout out to our son, Brandon, and our daughter-in-law, Amanda. (laughs) Their kids, they just push them to do hard things. And they are so accomplished. These are the most talented kids that I know. They don't always enjoy it. Sometimes they get stressed out. It's hard to learn how to ski. It's hard hard to learn how to surf. It's hard to learn how to make scrambled eggs or whatever. But I'm so impressed with the way that they push their kids and just encourage them and tell them, no, you can do this. You've got this. You've got this. I'm right here. I can help you. And these kids now, they just jump in and try anything new. They try new food. They try new hobbies. They try new adventures. They jump off cliffs. <laughs> they serve. I mean, they serve. They do everything. And I really, really appreciate that about their parents is they just really push, but they encourage them and they're, they're cheering them on. And their kids are incredibly gritty. They roll with anything. If hard things come up, they just roll with it. They don't whine. They don't complain. They're, I just, I'm really, really impressed. And I have to give that shout out to them. 
And I think another concept on grit is just that it's something that can be taught. It's something that can be developed. It's not either you have it or you don't. Grit is something that can be learned. It can be acquired, and parents can really help with that. Let's finish with something I think is very powerful as we talk about, as we've talked about grit today. And I guess it's this idea of thinking why. Why in the world do our children need grit? Why do they have to be gritty? And I think a lot of it has to do with the days that we're preparing them to live in. We want them to be prepared for that. Now, years ago, Sherry Dew spoke in, at BYU for a devotional. And she said this, speaking to that generation in 2003, 2004. So this is about a 20-year-old message now, but maybe it's more relevant now. She said, you've been told countless times that you're a chosen generation reserved for the latter part of the latter days. She quoted President Hinckley at the time, who said that this is the best generation we've ever had. She said, this is akin to being chosen to run the last leg of a relay where the coach always positions his strongest runner. You were recommended to help run the last leg of the relay that began with Adam and Eve because your pre-mortal spiritual valor indicated that you would have the courage. That's a key right there, that word courage, and the determination to face the world at its worst, to do combat with the evil one during his heyday, and in spite of it all, to be fearless in building up the kingdom of God. That's who we need, by the way. I'm interjecting now to say that's who we need. We need a, a generation of young people who are courageous and determined, who want to be leaders and who will be instrumental in building God's kingdom on the earth. Back to Sherry, do she said, you simply must understand this because you were born to lead by virtue of who you are, the covenants you've made, and the fact that you are here now in the 11th hour. You were born to lead as mothers and fathers because nowhere is righteous leadership more crucial than in the family. You were born to lead as priesthood and auxiliary leaders, as heads of communities, companies, and even nations. You were born to lead as men and women willing to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places, because that's what a true leader does. Then she quotes Isaiah 62, you were born to lead and you were born for glory. Now, as we continue, she said that if you hoped to passively and comfortably live out your lives, let me burst that little bubble once and for all. And please don't misunderstand. This is a magnificent time to live. It's a time, said President Kimball, when our influence can be tenfold what it might be in more tranquil times. And the strongest runner wants to run that last leg of the relay. Like Michael Jordan, he wanted to take the last shot. Back to Sherry Dew. But the last days are not for the faint of heart or for the spiritually out of shape. There will be days when you will feel defeated, exhausted, and plain old beat up by life's whiplash. People you love will disappoint you, and you will disappoint them. You'll probably struggle with some type of mortal appetite. Some days it will feel as though the veil between heaven and earth is made of reinforced concrete. And you may even face a crisis of faith. In fact, you can count on trials that will test your testimony and your faith. And then she said this, Aren't you glad I came bearing... Such optimistic news. And then Sherry Dew said, Actually, I am nothing if not optimistic about you, for everything about your lives is an indicator of our Father's remarkable respect for you. He recommended you for now, when the stakes are so high. Now is the day when his kingdom is being established once and for all, never again to be taken from the earth. 
This is the last leg of the relay. This is when he needs his strongest runners. The simple fact is that our father did not recommend Eve or Moses or Nephi or countless other magnificent exemplars for this dispensation. He recommended you and he recommended me. Do you think God would have left the last days to chance by sending men and women he could not count on? A common theme of patriarchal blessings given to men and women in your age is that you were sent now because our father's most trustworthy children would be needed in the final decisive battle for righteousness. And that's who you are. It is who you have always been. That talk was given at BYU. You were born to lead. You were born for glory. December the 9th, 2003. Well, I believe that message is so relevant today. We need to raise up a generation of young people who will be courageous and strong, who will stand up for principle, who will stand for what's right, who will be defenders of the faith and defenders of the family. And the only way that they'll be able to do that is to have grit. Well, we like to say LDS means let's do something. And we would invite you today, as you listen to this podcast, to think of one simple thing that you could do to help your children develop grit. Now, if they already have it and you feel like, you know what, I think they're pretty good, then obviously there's probably something more you can do. And if they don't have much of it, there's probably a lot more you can do. But find a simple way to help your children develop grit. It will serve them well in the days ahead. Thank you so much for being with us today. We look forward to being with you next time. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful, awesome week. 